Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. We find ourselves talking about trade all the time in the Trump era, but usually it's about something like crazy or weird that the president tweeted. Uh, But it's actually an important topic that is worth understanding. Uh, So I was really glad to get a chance to sit down with Kimberly Klausing. She's an economist at Reed and the author of a book called Open that is all about uh, trade, globalization, and related topics. You know, if you want to know, like, what's going on in the trade and globalization debate, uh, I think you're going to find this conversation really interesting. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I'm joined today by Kimberly Clausing, a uh, professor of economics at Reed College, the author of a, of a new book called Open, The Progressive Case for Trade, Immigration, and Global Capital. Yes? That's right. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So that that is a lot of stuff. Um, so I, Yes. <laughs> trade, I, though, I think is sort of at the, at the heart of, you know, what people worry about politically. And I, and I think... A very sort of simplistic question that I think a lot of people have is, look, the middle class has not done that well over the past generation or two. At the same time, we've seen China do really, really well. And so a natural inference is we've had these bad trade deals. Elites in the United States have sold us out. They've enriched themselves. They've enriched China. And the rest of us have been taking it on the chin. I take it that's not how you see it, but like, what's what's wrong with that? I mean, we see we see who's won, right? Chinese people have won, rich people have won, normal Americans have lost. Yeah, so I, I agree with some of what you just said in the sense that it does appear that income inequality and wage stagnation are, are real problems for the middle class, and that's something that I'm very clear about in that in right. that book. Um, but I guess where I differ from the Trump administration and many critics of international trade is this notion that trade is is a zero sum game that somehow China's winning came at at our expense. So Mm -hmm. if you look at the past 35 years, it's true, China has done enormous things. Um, And it's not just by trade, it's partly by opening up their economy to being a market economy instead of so state-run and a lot of other things like that. 
Um, but at that same time that China was growing and succeeding, the United States GDP grew by enough that if you had divided that extra GDP evenly, every household could have had over $20,000 of extra income over that period. That would be nice. Yeah, or 70% increase in GDP per capita over the last 35 years. So that's a really enormous increase. The problem was that our growth um, wasn't shared. And, and I think the reason it wasn't shared, you can't pin it entirely on trade. There's a lot of other stuff that's happening at the same time. Um, and, and as I argue in the book, if you if you respond to it by restricting trade, you might actually make the problem worse rather than better. Okay, so this is interesting because you know you say right, it, it's not zero sum. Um, Trump is a is a very zero sum oh, yeah. guy, um, and I think there's a sort of range of of middle grounds that that you can have there. But there's a sense that people have that there were you know industries that the United States had and that we have now lost. And isn't there something like actually zero sum oh. to that? That like we once had a furniture making industry and an mm -hmm. apparel making mm -hmm. industry, and now we sort of don't. Oh, sure. Um, you know, and there's a constant adjustment cost to both trade and capitalism itself that mm -hmm. that happen every day. So take the Chinese case. It's it's true that they have expanded in sectors where we used to be strong and where we are strong no longer. So you can look very carefully at sort of the geographic variation in the Chinese uh, import risk, basically. Mm -hmm. So some places like Mississippi actually had a lot of industries that competed directly with Chinese imports, whereas some um, states like Nevada had very few sure. <laughs> um, jobs that competed with Chinese imports. And if you use that variation, you can find, well, maybe as many as a million or two million even jobs could have been lost at the expense of these Chinese imports. So that's a that's a very real concern and something I don't take lightly. But there's there's several things to keep in mind when mm -hmm. one is sort of saying, okay, well, the the key to helping the middle class is then restricting trade with China, um, because. First of all, there's a lot of benefits associated with that Chinese trade. It's enabled some of our other industries to be much more successful than they would be otherwise if they couldn't use, for instance, Chinese inputs in their manufacturing processes. They wouldn't be as competitive as world markets. And then, for instance, Boeing might have a smaller market share relative to Airbus. Our auto companies might be less effective and so on and so forth. So that's one issue. Uh, but a second issue that I think is even more important is that in a vibrant capitalist economy like the United States, there's just a tremendous amount of job churn on an ongoing basis. So mm -hmm. there's always people losing jobs, and there's always a lot of job creation, too. So in the typical quarter in the United States, over 6 million jobs are lost, and over 6 million jobs are created. And the net of those two numbers tends to be what's happening to the, to the jobs numbers that you hear in those reports. Um, but what that means is that because there's so much churn, there's always going to be a lot of dislocation and harm and people losing their jobs to robots or domestic competition or changes in tastes, right? And so if we say, okay, well, all of these problems are really because of China, then we're taking something that was like maybe responsible for one or two million jobs over a decade, right? And we're saying, okay, well, every problem is that, then we're going to be missing, one, a whole bunch of other causes, but also a much more direct ways to help workers um, because as we've seen already, and we can we can go into this, that, that protecting ourselves from Chinese trade actually can in many ways backfire and hurt U.S. workers. So I think this turn point yeah. is, is an important one. You know, so my my mother was a was a graphic designer, analog era graphic designer, and she, you know, eventually lost her job not to imported Chinese graphic designers, but to computers right. and, and digital yeah. graphic designers, and. It's, it's very sad when something like that 
happens to somebody and to say, well, you know, in the aggregate, it's like better that we have computers. I mean, I think it's true, but doesn't doesn't address it. Right. Right. But also this happens whether you have trade or not. Right. Absolutely. And if you look at the U.S. manufacturing share of unemployment, oh, sorry, of employment um, over the last 60, 70 years, it's just been on a monotonic decline, irrespective uh-huh. of what's been going on in other countries' trade policy. So it's definitely the case that as our economy has become richer, sometimes if jobs have been displaced. And, and that is a very real problem. And it's a problem that I think that there's a lot of really smart solutions to, like we can do wage insurance, we can expand the earned income tax credit, we can do better job supporting communities. But I think the problem with sort of lashing out at our trading partners and thinking that we can go back in time is that that, you know, that that creates a lot of risks and and sort of misunderstood dangers um, that could harm the very people that we're trying to ultimately help. So so what what kind of danger? Okay, so uh, here's a few. So take the the, our latest trade war with China. China has retaliated uh, to that, which is expected um, by raising tariffs on U.S. products, including, for instance, soybeans. Right. Mm -hmm. So if you go and you talk to farmers in uh, the upper Midwest, which I had the chance to do recently because I was there for my Uh, daughter's college graduation. And and you talk to some of these people, they are quite upset (laughs) about the fact that um, markets that they used to do very well in and that they felt that they were competitive and they were competing on sort of market terms um, with are now closed off to them and they're losing market share. And even if the Trump administration and others promised them sort of subsidies in, in response, you know, they would much rather just sort of compete and keep those products. So that's that's one area is that uh, companies and workers that are in the export industries get hurt. But also, if you look at um, General Motors, for instance, General mm-hmm. Motors paid over a billion dollars in tariffs on, on steel and other products over the um, past year or so. And they also closed plants in Ohio, right? And that wasn't the only reason they closed plants in Ohio. But when we put tariffs on intermediate products like steel, like um, other inputted uh, simple machinery and things like that, it makes manufacturing in the U.S. more expensive, which causes a new set of shocks, right? So we talked about the shocks coming from the Chinese imports, but we're going to get new shocks coming uh, from these tariffs, right? And so those are all really big costs. Um, and that's even before we get to what happens at the grocery store. And So I guess, you know, part of the moral of the story here is you either sort of have a systemic way of taking care of people who suffer economic problems or you don't, right? And if you do, then these trade problems are maybe not so bad. And if you don't, then trying to address it just with trade is not really going to generate stability in people's lives because, I don't know, it's like the balloon pushes in other directions. Exactly. Um, you know, and, and you create new types of disruption and actually you sort of destabilize people's lives um, because they're, you know, losing jobs that they could have had and they're having to switch sectors because we're artificially encouraging, say, U.S. steel, but we're artificially discouraging all the industries that, that use steel, right? So that creates its own set of disruptions. But so in, in political terms, I think you often hear this sort of case for trade made around our export industries, right? When Trans-Pacific Partnership was pending, you heard a lot about this, that that this was good because we were going to get access to these new Asian markets. But then a lot of Trump's logic on here is, yes, we could have tit-for-tat retaliation, but ultimately China exports more to the US than we export to China, right? We're running a trade deficit. So if we go to zero, 
that's going to advantage the United States. So we have the upper hand in the negotiation. Yeah. So I think uh, one thing that's really abundantly clear is that the administration doesn't understand um, the basic economics of trade deficits and surpluses. So mm -hmm. let's first start with why bilateral surpluses and deficits shouldn't be a concern. So um, it would be odd, in fact, if there were bilateral trade balance, because it would imply that in every relationship, there's an equal and opposite need to trade. So, so for instance- So bilateral is, is two, yeah, two countries, right? It's just right? two the, countries, the, right? The yeah. U.S. and the Bahamas. Exactly. Or, or imagine yourself, right? You probably run a trade service plus with Fox Media, right. right? You sell your services to them and they pay you something, right? But you run a trade deficit with your local grocery store. And that's because, you know, you don't want to do all your shopping at Vox Media and you don't want to sell your labor to the grocery store. Mm -hmm. So it sort of makes sense that, that the bilateral things would not be balanced. Now, if you look at the overall um, if you take a country's overall surplus, sure. that's sort of like asking, uh, does Matt um, each year earn enough to pay for the things he wants to buy? Right? right. And the same is true for countries. So like if the United States is consuming more than it's producing, then it's going to run a trade deficit. And mm -hmm. that's that's really why we run our trade deficits year after year is because if you look at us as a country – our consumption exceeds our income. We're not great savers as private citizens. The government is not good at saving money. Instead, it runs a deficit. And so our country in every year runs a deficit. And that's just sort of a, an arithmetic truth that the countries that are running these um, big overall deficits are borrowers and the countries that are running the surpluses are lenders. Yeah, right? so this is, this yeah. is like it's in all the economics textbooks right. and people don't don't know it, right? Yeah. But so the idea of this is that you have a, in each country a domestic savings equilibrium. Right. And that it's those domestic factors determine if you have a trade balance or not. Right. right? And that the quote unquote trade policy is not what yeah. drives this, right? Exactly. So we could yeah. have a 15% tariff on everything. But as long as the private sector savings rate is low, the government deficit is big, we are still going to be importing. Oh, absolutely. And in fact, if you look at the at the trade deficit numbers, since all these tariffs have come into place, it really hasn't improved. Um, and one of the reasons it hasn't is because at the same time, we've been doing things like expanding the budget deficit by giving away all these tax cuts, you know, and, and doing other things that affect those, those big savings balances that we were talking about. And this about. is one of the big ironies, actually, in the tax bill, right, is... Not only did the tax bill increase the deficit, but the specific logic of the tax bill was to try to make the United States a more attractive place for foreign investment. Yeah. Which, I, I, I mean, I think I understand normal people don't see it this way, right? But these are the inverses of each other, right? If you attract foreign money, you are going to, we use the money to buy foreign goods. Right, exactly. So, um, and that's exactly right. It's an equal and opposite thing. So our borrowing is the same size and sort of uh, exact magnitude as, as that trade deficit. And that's just an accounting identity. That's not any sort of fancy theory. It's always true for all countries and all times. The borrowers are the ones with the deficits and the savers are the ones with the surpluses. And so, um, so for instance, these trade policies probably were going to divert our trade potentially like to other countries mm -hmm. that we're not targeting, but it's really unlikely to affect this overall. Yeah. So th this accounting identity, I mean, again, it's so like Trump will often say, well, we're losing $300 billion a year. Right. But you can't actually lose right, right. money in that sense. Right. It's not they're not physical, scarce physical commodities. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. so however much dollars go abroad, they like mathematically, they have to come back. 
Yes, and also um, we could argue that we're we're uh, actually the ones advantaged. We got all this stuff. <laughs> and right. they get less stuff, right? So it's like every year they send us, you know, 100 units of stuff and we send them a smaller number of units of stuff, right? And then we could say, oh, we're the winners from this. We get a lot more of their things than they got of ours, right? And in exchange, they get these little slips of paper that say that we're going to give them more later, right? right. Um, but that's the that's the borrowing. But so, okay, but now the other thing that I remember from college economics yes. is that, okay, so the trade balance is driven by domestic savings, but also a low-income, fast-growing country like China should be borrowing, right? And they're not. Yeah, so the, there is uh, there are several puzzles, actually, in this literature. One is you might think, okay, well, capital should be more useful in poor countries, so they should be borrowing on that for the right. future. Um but one thing that we notice when we sort of look at poor countries is that they're some of each type, just like they're rich countries that are that they're some of each type. Mm -hmm. So Germany saves a lot and they run surpluses and we don't. We run deficits. And and China runs a surplus typically, but Mexico runs a deficit if you look at it relative to the entire rest of the world. Um, so I think what tends to dominate is, isn't so much just whether you're rich or poor, but some of the savings habits and, you know, even cultural things can affect savings, like how much people think they need to save or whether there's a safety net for old people. So, you know, if there isn't, then you might be more likely to save for those reasons. And so so in a country like China, sometimes savings rates have been as high as 50 percent, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they're saving like half of every dollar as a country. Um, and, and so with such extremely high savings rates, even if investment is very high, which it is also in China, they're mm -hmm. investing more as a share of GDP than we are, but because their savings is even higher than their investment, they're net lenders in typical years. But these sort of are policy choices too, right? I mean, it's even though it's not trade policy exactly, that the Chinese state acts to suppress domestic consumption. Like they, mm -hmm. even yeah. though they, even though they have pictures of Mao on their money, like they they don't have a real welfare state. Um, they don't do much old age provision. And like they they could do that. Right? I mean, this right. could be the substance of a bilateral trade dialogue. Yeah. And even I, though it isn't. And I think some of our uh, issues with China are actually a little bit out of date, you know, because if we uh -huh. look at um, concerns about currency manipulation, yes. for instance, or concerns that they're suppressing consumption or concerns that they're not investing enough publicly. A lot of those are sort of outdated. They've done a lot of public investment uh -huh. of late. A consumption is rising a lot faster than it had been a decade ago. You know, so um, and in, in many recent instances, they've actually intervened to prop up rather than devalue their currency. You know, so um, it's important to not be fighting yesterday's war, too. <laughs> so these are kind of just old. Some of them are, are older uh, vestiges of the past. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. 
With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. One thing you, you write in the book, and, and I think it, everyone sort of agrees is happening, is that people have moved out of these like trading manufacturing sectors into what are called like non-tradable. It's like you do haircuts and stuff like that, right? I feel like there's an assumption in a lot of quarters that that is bad, that there's something worse about sort of all giving each other haircuts rather than making real things. Yeah. So I guess it depends on how you think of services jobs. And there, there are sort of two types of services. Mm-hmm. Um, well, at least probably more than that. <laughs> um, but there's some services job that you think of like sort of like folding shirts at the Gap or, or giving someone a haircut or waiting tables that sound like low wage, not that fun mm-hmm. jobs. But there are some services jobs, which in fact you can export and are a lot of fun. So um, what I do, I'm a professor of economics. Mm-hmm. You might not think of that as an export good, but I have a lot of international students. And when international students come to class, they pay tuition dollars that are effectively U.S. service exports, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a really kind of a, a cool industry to be exporting. You're sort of exporting higher education to the people of the world, right? It's it's good for those people because they get a better education, presumably, than they would have had at home or they wouldn't have uh, made the trip for it. But it's also good for the United States because then we have access to some of the brightest minds in the world that come here and study. You know, so, th- so those types of service professions that, that are in many cases, expanding, um, and, and we could also include others, uh, financial services, entertainment, um, high-tech uh, types of things. You know, some of those jobs are actually kind of cool and fun jobs, and some of those services are even tradable, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's not always the case that just more manufacturing is always better. <laughs> it kind of depends on what you're comparing it with. But I mean, the manufacturing work was associated with certain kind of um, high wages and labor unions and, yes, and things yeah. like that. So, so I mean, I think one thing that, that you might say about this is sort of, in theory, trade has not that much to do with the story of middle-class decline or, or what have you in the United States. But in practice, it does, because what we did was we decimated unionized middle-class manufacturing jobs and sort of created in exchange a lot of like Walmart and Uber driving. Right. I mean, I 
I agree that trade has contributed to that for sure, and that's something that I acknowledge in the book. But there's a lot of other things that we could blame for the decline of high, um, highly unionized, high-wage, middle-class jobs. Mm-hmm. And so um, some that I point to are technological change, which is, of course, um, you know, related to trade because maybe you pursue automation in part to compete in the world right. economy. So that's, you know, that's related, but it's it's something that would occur even if we— put sky-high tariffs on everything, we would probably still be doing that, right? right? So that's one thing. But market power is another issue that I think is underappreciated. Uh, the, the extent to which large companies and uh, firms with more market share have sort of suppressed wages in, in markets where they are dominant. Um, mm-hmm. And so that, I think, is, is something that we've really seen on the rise over this last generation mm-hmm. that's contributed to the squeezing of labor and the sort of outsourcing, even domestic outsourcing of some types of jobs in a company. So if, you, if you're um, at, a, at a big company that pays high wages, it may pay high wages to its workers, but it might also outsource HR or um, janitorial services or the food services, you know. And so we get these labor markets that are intensely competitive that mm-hmm. aren't benefiting from the gains of these big fancy firms, right? So, so market power and technological change and, and policy changes too, changes in our labor laws and changes in our tax laws have sort of turbocharge some of these other issues right. too. And and so I think when we look at the the whole melange of causes, I think the problem with sort of just singling out trade is that if we just respond in that one area, um, we're going to be ignoring, you know, maybe five-sixths of the problem mm-hmm. while, while impoverishing other countries and making our, uh, the shopping trips of poor people much more expensive. Because if you look at tariffs, they're, they're regressive tax. The poor spend about three times as much of their income on tariffs than the rich do in the United States. So that's is, a, that, is that just because sort of consumption taxes in general – have that regressive structure? Is there something special yeah. about the traded commodities? There's actually there's three reasons. One is consumption taxes in general are regressive because uh, poor people don't save and rich people do. Um, but there's two other reasons. Um, poor people tend to consume a higher share of imports than rich people because they're just consuming more traded goods. And so you might imagine, for instance, going to the grocery store um, and the types of products that you Buy at Walmart might look different from the types that you buy at your local's farmer's market, and you're sort of imagining which consumers get sorted into which store, sure. right? There's going to be more imports in, in the low-income stores, typically. And, and the third reason, actually, it turns out that the pattern of our trade protection uh, puts higher tariffs on products that poor people consume disproportionately. Ah. So if you look at shoes, for instance, like plastic and cheap shoes actually have higher tariff rates than fine leather shoes. Cotton t-shirts have higher tariff rates than cashmere sweaters, right? So hmm. so because of the pattern of our protection, in addition to those other two factors, uh, it's a really highly regressive consumption tax. So it's 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 kind of an ironic response to the concerns of the poor to be like, you know what we're going to do? We're going to make the things that you buy more expensive. <laughs> so... Yeah. I was in uh, Brussels years ago for the sort of launch of uh, TTIP, the Transatlantic yes, yeah. Trade and Investment Partnership that wound up not happening. Uh, but it was fascinating to me that what they were talking about in talking about having those talks was like almost like it wasn't at all tariffs, really, right? It was all about regulation. And the idea that – and it, it makes sense when, when you start to think about it. But products are regulated like most things. 
And if the regulations are different in different places, then that is a barrier to trade. And so the cars that are, even though we have European cars in the US, they're not the same because the regulations are different. So you you actually can't import a car that a French person would drive and, and vice versa. But that gets the trade talks really, I think, like way outside the economics textbook yes. discussion mm-hmm. of trade into an area, I mean, a lot of areas where people start to have suspicions yes. about what's going on. Yes. And like, is this just a stalking horse to deregulate everything? Because you can say, well, every regulation is a kind of a trade barrier. So if we're dismantling trade barriers, we've got to, you know, we like get nine corporate lobbyists together in a room and they say, aha. Yeah. So I think um, people have legitimately worried about some of the content of trade agreements in the past. And two examples that come to mind are this investor state dispute settlement procedures Mm -hmm. where, for instance, um, companies are authorized to sue states about regulations that they feel have been unfair effectively. Um, And another area is intellectual property protection, where the U.S. has sort of foisted the intellectual property protection for our fancy companies onto poorer countries that may not be able to afford to have such long patents on their drugs or to, Mm -hmm. you know, or things like that. So those are examples where corporate interests have sort of overtaken trade agreement negotiations to try to push the agenda that's right for them. Um, But while that's certainly a concern, and while I wouldn't include those chapters in my dream trade negotiations of the future, there are also ways in which trade agreements can raise standards. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Um, Canada and the EU recently signed a trade agreement, and they agreed in very explicit terms that they were going to make sure to keep all of their environmental regulations, you know, uh, and that they were completely authorized to have as many as they wanted, Mm -hmm. as long as they applied them in uniform fashion to both Canadians and the EU. So you couldn't, for instance, if you're the EU, you couldn't have like a special one for Canada that was more harsh than the one that Uh you had for your own firms. And and those those types of more modern trade agreements, and and TPP had some of these provisions too that protected environmental regulation and that harmonized labor standards more upward than downward. So Vietnam um, um, for instance, under the CPTPP, which is the acronym that uh, was left after the U.S. left the TPP and mm-hmm. the remaining 11 countries joined together, uh, Vietnam and, and others agreed to have higher labor rights than they had um, prior, right, in part as a condition to joining the agreement. So it doesn't have to be a race to the bottom. There, mm-hmm. You know, uh, the very fact that it's called a trade agreement doesn't mean that you have to um, prejudice corporate interests. And there's been sort of a movement, I think, throughout history um, to, to including, I think, more of the things that, that the left would hold as desirable and, in these agreements you, as well. You talk about this yeah. in the climate change right. context, right, where it's actually sort of important because if you look at like a small country, its carbon dioxide emissions are not globally significant. And yet, if every small country doesn't restrain emissions, you're not going to get anywhere. So you need some... Mechanism. I mean, obviously, the U.S. is at the moment not doing anything. Oh, right. But I mean, <laughs> but the if U.S. We is were the same to. argument, right? It's because we're like, you know, like even if we did everything we could and the other countries don't, right? It's this massive free rider problem. You kind of hope that the other people do it. But if you do it yourself, it's not necessarily in your interest, right? So there's this big argument for international cooperation. Right. And actually, I think the argument for trade agreements and for climate agreements is really similar to the argument for government. Like if you just mm-hmm. let 
people do their own thing without rules, right? Um, you're not going to have as good an outcome as if you can solve some of these problems of collective action that the government is there to solve. And so you can view international agreements as also solving those mm -hmm. collective action problems because maybe no individual or no company wants to reduce their carbon emissions by themselves. Right. And maybe no country even wants to tackle it if the other ones aren't. But if you can agree with others, you know, and it sounds kind of utopian today to even use those sentences, um, but, but you know, then you're going to stand a chance of solving these But I mean, because what, what we were doing, what the U.S. was doing was going around to a number of East Asia, Southeast Asian countries and saying, basically, we'll let you in on the textile export game if you adopt our pharmaceutical patent rules. Yeah. And we could have said, we'll let you in on the textile export game if you adopt environmental rules. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, that really is just a question. I mean, that's not a question of like, is it good to have trade agreements, but of like, what is what they in look the like. agreement? Exactly. Yeah. And I think, for instance, there'd be room for a US EU agreement on solving some of these tax competition problems, right? Because mm -hmm. both the European Union and the United States are wrestling with the fact that multinational companies are really good at avoiding taxes, right? So if you if you can get governments to band together and be like, okay, we may not agree on the tax rate, and we probably shouldn't agree on the tax rate, but we can agree on provisions that would prevent companies from creating income that's taxed nowhere, right? right. I mean, it, so let's let's get together and agree on that, you know, and that's the kind of thing what, which also could, I think, be uh, folded into a trade agreement because you've got the sort of carrot there of market access to to bring the business community in and, you know, and so you can throw in some some other vegetables too. <laughs> so let's, let's talk about taxes because yeah. this winds up being a surprising amount of your book, actually. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, the Trump administration's view has been that they they have this quote unquote populist take on trade mm -hmm. and then giant corporate tax cut. Yeah. <laughs> which is not maybe not so populist. Yeah. Um, but this is a big part of globalization, right? Is profit shifting. And, you know, I was in uh, in an Ireland on vacation, and there's these lovely little European headquarters of the big American technology companies, which is fine. Dublin's a nice city. You know, you, you got to have your office somewhere. Uh, but a really suspicious amount of profits seem to be accruing to those Dublin offices. Just to start with the beginning of your question, it, it, it always struck me as sort of odd that anyone could call Trump a populist. And I, I mean, I even do in my book because he tries to sell himself that way. But, but if you look at the actual contents of the policies, like we're kind of going back to the, the last Gilded Age in terms of putting more of the costs of raising the government on tariffs, which are, as we pointed out, are regressive, and then massively cutting taxes for those at the, at the top of the distribution. So it's really just not a very... Right. It's really hard to characterize something that worsens income inequality with both hands as populist. Um, but but turning to the profit shifting issue, I mean, I do think there are both sort of regressive and progressive ways to respond to the challenges of globalization. So I think what we've seen so far is the regressive response, mm -hmm. which is make things more expensive for poor people. But but there are progressive responses too, and one one response is to say, okay, we recognize that capital is mobile, and we recognize that some laborers are mobile, and we recognize that goods and services are mobile. So how do we modernize our tax system to account for that, right? Mm -hmm. And right now we have a tax system that's incredibly leaky. And a lot of work that I've done suggests that we lose over $100 billion a year due to profit shifting of companies. That's a lot of money that we could be spending on, on other things. And there's some, there's some well-known solutions to that profit shifting that we could pursue. And um, one of the disappointing things about that 
tax bill that they passed um, in, at the end of 2017 that just went into effect uh, last year is that if you look at the international provisions of that legislation, despite having this huge profit-shifting problem, they're not raising any money by tackling that problem. They sort of make the problem with worse with one hand and better with the other. Uh-huh. And then they end up getting no extra revenue from the international provisions, which is really surprising given how much how much we were losing to having companies book their money in, in Bermuda or the Caymans or places like so that. How, so how does that work? Right? Yeah. How, how, how do I get to have all my profits be tax-free in the Cayman Islands. Yeah, so there are several ways you can do it. Um, One is by sort of transferring your intellectual property to the island jurisdiction, right? Effectively, maybe you have a cost-sharing agreement with your Bermuda affiliate where they, you know, share in the costs of creating your intellectual property at some early stage, but then they end up owning it, Okay. right? So, um, for instance, uh, you know, you could have them own, if you're Starbucks, you could have them own the Starbucks experience, right? Okay. Um, and then when, because they own that, right, you sort of arrange your financial matters such that every affiliate kind of pays them for the privilege of creating the Starbucks experience, right? And then, then the profit ends up accruing there rather than here, mm-hmm. right? And that's a sort of a simplified... Sure. Uh, a version of what's happening, but effectively you're doing things um, with your affiliates in other countries to make them look artificially profitable, and you look artificially uh, unprofitable. You know, and 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 U.S. multinationals have been very good at this for for actually quite a long time. Um, and you know, General Electric, for instance, had about a decade where they were making billions and billions of dollars. Um, on the planet, but they were getting a refund most years from the U.S. government because they arranged to have so little of it tax year. So what, I mean, what do you do about this? Yeah, so uh, there's a couple different solutions you can pursue. Um, If you want to be more revolutionary, for instance, um, you could tax... Foreign income, the way we tax national income in the United States, which doesn't actually sound that revolutionary when you put it that way. But um, in Oregon or California or Virginia, right, uh, we don't ask companies to tell us how much they really earned in Oregon or California or Virginia. We ask, well, how much did you earn in the United States? They tell us a number, and then we apportion that to Oregon or California or Virginia with a formula, right? Okay. And so you could do that internationally, too. You could say to, to Intel or Apple, you could say, well, how much did you earn on the planet? And then you assign some fraction of that global income to the United States. It's based on things like where are your customers, where are your employees, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and that's a system that has worked really well at the subnational level and could, with some time to study, <laughs> work uh, well internationally. But it's not kind of a day one type proposal that you could do the second, you know, you, you got control of Congress or something. So um, in terms of quick things that you could do, um, you could strengthen um, the minimum tax. There's, a, there's sort of the beginnings of a minimum tax in this new tax bill, and you can mm-hmm. make it tougher, um, such that no matter where you earned the income, you immediately pay tax in the United States. Um, and there's something in there now, but because it has, one, it has a rate that's half the U.S. rates, so we're sort of mm-hmm. saying you're discounted to half the U.S. rate. Two, we're sort of exempting the first 10% return on assets from taxation at all. And three, we're letting companies average their uh, foreign income before they even apply the minimum tax. And so if you if you change those three features, you could actually make the minimum tax a lot tougher and start to get at a lot of that revenue that way. So I think sometimes, you know, people can look at this and it can be like baffling. Like, yes. like, yeah, how, co- like how come Republicans are so lax about this? Yeah. And, you know, are they all on the take? Like what's going on? And the reason it seems to me, in my experience, is if you talk to, you know, well-credentialed, knowledgeable conservative people, they will say that taxing corporate income is just actually a really bad 
and harmful. So while they agree that the current system is not, like, great, they're not super interested in clamping down on corporate tax avoidance because they think the whole concept is ill-considered. Yes, and I disagree very strongly with that uh, for a couple of reasons. One, um, if you think about corporate tax, it's really our only shot at taxing most U.S. equity income because, uh, as it turns out, 70% of all U.S. capital income doesn't get taxed at the individual level by the U.S. government. So, so what, that's like capital gains and dividends? Yeah, yeah, that's like capital gains and dividends. So, for instance, you might say, well, well why not? You know, But if you stop and think about it, your retirement accounts are, are tax-free because they're in these tax-privileged IRAs and things like that. Mm-hmm. 529 accounts for college savings are tax-free. Endowments and nonprofits have a bunch of capital income that doesn't get taxed at the individual level. Foreigners are investing in the U.S. stock market and their tax, their individual taxes aren't paid to the U.S. government. You know, so if you add all that up, that's about 70% of all the capital income that's in U.S. corporate form, right? And so if you don't tax it at the corporate level, you really there's only a small sliver of it that's taxed at the individual level. And at the individual level, we're giving huge preferences, you know, that capital gains and dividends rates are much lower than labor rates. You're allowed a step up in basis at death so that if you have a lot of stock and you die, you get to sort of wipe out the capital gain without passing it on to your to your heirs. You know, so we actually have very light capital taxation, you know. And so if you ask the same conservative economists, like, is that okay? Some of them would be like, yeah, capital, we shouldn't tax it. Right. You know, but I, but I don't think there's either theory or evidence behind that supposition. So one, the theory that they're basing these arguments on, the very people who wrote those papers have changed their mind when they wrote more complicated papers with more realistic assumptions, right? So there's plenty of, of theoretical work that, that I think belies this idea that we shouldn't tax capital. But also just, just look at the data. Like, look at all the countries that have cut capital taxes and ask, did that redound to the glory of their workers? And the answer is no. Like, I mean, country after country, we see these big corporate tax cuts. And then if you look at what happened to the wages of their workers, it, it's really clear who benefits from that as shareholders. So I mm-hmm. think a lot of the the interest in, in eviscerating the corporate tax is coming from people who don't want capital to be taxed at all and who are perfectly comfortable to... And so I, I, to me, I mean, this is this is the deep sort of linkage in what you were saying about globalization, right? Which is that there is a perception that a policy changes have been made that have helped enrich capital owners at yes. the expense of workers. And yes. an important question is like, which policy change yes. was that? <laughs> right. Right. And the move to not tax capital owners on their profits. <laughs> That's it. Has had that impact like in a very clear <laughs> oh, and direct yeah. way. Yeah, I mean taxes are such a powerful policy tool and if you look at the kind of things that we subjected uh workers to over the last generation, all those forces we were just talking about, market power, technology, trade, and you're asking, well what's the optimal tax policy response to that? It's clear that we should be making the system more progressive, right? We should be handing more money to the workers and taking more from the winners of of all of those games, right? From the monopoly power people and the people who own the robots and the, the, the shareholders of companies that export. But instead, it seems like our response, and you can look at Congressional Budget Office data on this, the 
tax system is actually less redistributive now than it was at the beginning of that period. Right. Right. So we've moved in the opposite direction, and this latest tax bill is just the latest big step in the opposite direction. I mean, there have been there have been some helpful things along the way too, but on net, if you look at what the tax system's doing, it's less progressive than it used to be. But a lot of people have the perception that there's a linkage between these changes, either a sort of left critique that globalization has made it impossible to regulate and govern national economies, or uh, from the business community, like, well, it's a globalized world, we need to be competitive, right? Like, isn't yeah. the, is, is there something to that, that like, well, capital is mobile, goods are mobile, you know, Burger King can become Tim Hortons if it wants to, and like, we need to now, we, we need to either re-erect economic sovereignty or we need to surrender to these these global capital forces. Yeah, and so to all those people, I say, please read my book <laughs> because I have I have lots of ideas in there about how we can we can um, really uh, respond to these concerns. But in particular, I think what's really lacking isn't the policy solutions, right? We've got good ways to tax capital in a global economy, and I've got a list of them in the book, right? Um, and we've got good ways to help workers to expand the earned income tax credit, to give free community college, to have wage insurance. We've got all these great ideas. What we're missing is not the feasibility of doing it in a global economy. We're missing political will, right? So we need to a, when elections by people who care about these issues, but B, have the political will to stand up to the interests that are against it and actually implement these well-known, efficient policies that can both help workers and that can tax those who've really benefited and to make to make this a, more of a, not just a, a non-zero-sum game for the world, but a non-zero-sum game for the Americans. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Immigration. Yes. Right. I feel like it's become more and more clear that in a lot of ways, immigration is at the emotional heart of political backlash in, in many countries. And, you know, it, this is an issue that has some economic dimensions, but also a lot of not economic dimensions. Yes. But you're an economist. Yes. So what's 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 the economics? So the economics, I think, is just 
unbelievably clear that immigrants are a net boon to the U.S. economy. It's just um, there was a National Academies of Sciences review that took all sorts of researchers from across the political spectrum and had them sort of synthesize all of the literature. And, and it's quite clear that immigrants are good for economic growth. They're good for almost all workers in the economy. They're, uh, immigration is good for themselves. It's good for innovation. It's good for, you know, you just you kind of list all of the um the benefits, and they're quite large. And it's also helpful, by the way, for our demographic pressures of having mm-hmm. like a, a aging population. But I think there's still some concerns, some economic concerns about immigrants. Um, there's concerns that they might hurt workers in some sectors, right? Um, because you might think, well, since there's a larger supply of labor, right, they're right. going to take some jobs. Now, I mean, of course, we need to remember that they also create jobs that, you know, like half of our billion-dollar startups were founded by immigrants, that right. 40% of Fortune 500 companies were founded by an immigrant or an immigrant's child. You know, so they're creating jobs as well as filling jobs, and that's an important thing to remember. But there's some concern about that. And there's a little bit of evidence, not a lot, but a little bit of evidence that maybe um, for teen workers and for recent waves of immigrants that some of those um, workers could be could be hurt. Um, I think this this recent yeah. waves of immigrants point yeah. is always an interesting one, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Because I mean it's it's revealing politically, right, that the the clearest evidence for some category of workers being hurt by a person from Nicaragua coming tomorrow is that it's the people who came from Nicaragua yesterday. Yes. Who lose yeah. out yeah. because they're very similar. Right. And and to me, this is less of a concern because if you look at the uh, economic benefits to migrants from moving to the United States, they're very large. Like on average, you get like four times the wage you would get in your home country, maybe five, maybe 10 in some cases mm-hmm. um, by moving to the United States. So if that means that in your next decade or so, your wage growth is lower because we're letting in more people like you, uh, you know, it's not necessarily that you're going to be worse off than if you'd stayed home, right? right? You know, so I mean, I think I think there's just a really uh, compelling, strong case for, um, you know, more rather than less immigration. I think we're, uh, this argument gets harder is if, if you review all this economic evidence, I mean, a lot of people are like, well, I agree with chapter eight, immigration seems to be good, but why is it that people dislike it? Right. You know, and, th- and then there's a couple things to point out. One is that if you actually look at polling data, people don't. Like, I mean, most people are fine with immigrants. And in the states where they're most fine with immigrants are the states where the immigrants are. Like, the places where people are highly suspicious about immigrants are often states with very few immigrants. Um, Right. Another thing to point out is even some of these cultural fears are sort of misunderstood. You know, if you look at the actual data, it looks like immigrants are assimilating faster than they used to assimilate mm-hmm. in past generations. It looks like their crime rates are lower than than people who were born in the United States. You know, it looks like uh, on net they're strengthening rather than weakening the institutions of their community. So it's it's really just hard to make a, a logical case against. I, I did think you yeah. you had an anecdote in there though that that sort of got at this, which was you. Talked about this grocery store, right? And well, I just tell what, what 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 was what was the deal? The grocery store in Belgium. Yeah, the, yeah. So um, I was making the point in the book that you know the United States is a is a nation of immigrants, and it's hard to really sort of pinpoint our our American traits, aside from noting that they're sort of a hodgepodge of the immigrants that have come to the United States. And so I, I was in a grocery store in, in Brussels where I lived for a year when I was, um, you know, a younger person. And I was shopping at this grocery store that I think catered to EU bureaucrats because they had uh-huh. little flags in different aisles that showed you like, oh, this is Norwegian food and this is Swedish food. And and in the distance, I saw stars and stripes. And I was like, oh, that's exciting. Let's go see what American food was there. 
And I got over to the the Stars and Stripes, and there there were like beans and tortillas and salsas, and it was all Mexican food. <laughs> it was which was awesome because I, I missed that from being an American. Um, you know, so it was it was sort of a reminder that in a way there isn't. American cuisine, there's just a, a hodgepodge of our, our immigrant cuisines, and that's why our, our food is better than it would be. I said I was just in just in Ireland, and and it's yeah. it's striking that a lot of the foods that you know we eat at home are very present there everywhere. You know, hamburgers and and yeah. pizza and stuff yeah. like that. But like, what really does come across as I would distinctively American as opposed to Irish, say, is what we would call Mexican food, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. That there's no, yeah. there are no black beans in a yeah. regular supermarket in Dublin. Yeah. Uh, but I did see like one supermarket that was bigger had like an American section and they had old El Paso taco kits <laughs> yeah. there. Um, yeah. But I feel like that does sort of cut to the the heart of it, that there's some people, like I think you and I and probably most Weeds listeners are of the the social class in America that finds this incredibly charming, the discovery that like the real American food is Tex-Mex. Yes. But then there is a sense in which, okay, no, like that is changing American culture, right? Like in 1950, nobody would have said that like real American food was tacos. Yeah, but they might have said real American food is pizza or other things that we borrowed from prior generations right. of immigrants, you know, which themselves were vilified earlier. You know, like, I mean, Italian immigrants used to be vilified. Irish immigrants used to be vilified. If you go back far enough, you can find people vilifying any any group. So <laughs> I guess I, one, one lesson from the American experience is that hopefully we can overcome, you know, these waves of vilification and, and realize that on that, you know, these groups make us stronger. And I think there's just overwhelming uh, evidence for that. And it just seems to me, like a difference between the U.S. and European immigration context is that we do have that trajectory, right? You can you can point in America to a time at which pizza and spaghetti were like incredibly exotic, and now they're very very normalized, and say that you know, like in a patriotic way with a flag and stuff, that like this this is what America is all about. In a way that, like, I'm, I'm not sure that is what Denmark is all about. Yeah, and I think one of the interesting contrasts here is actually if you look at European immigration patterns, like a lot of uh, European countries now have um, a higher share of foreign-born population than the United States, which is surprising. Sure. But what they don't have is hundreds of years of history where that was true, right? So for them, it's been a much more rapid increase in, over a shorter period of time, in part because of the Syrian conflict and in part because of other uh, other economic factors. But... Um, but for us, it is this really long historical trajectory. It is. Although even so, when when you get to policy recommendations, your ideas are they're not that different from the Trump administration's, right? Oh, to I, say, would, I would to, not say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, to, to to say that well, there should be maybe more focus on skills and yeah, well, education. I, well, I, I say there should be more skilled immigration at the same time that we're also increasing. So if you look, I say I suggest an increase in the unskilled as well mm-hmm. as an increase in the skilled and a path to citizenship for the undocumented that's compassionate. So I think in all, uh, you know, in all of those areas, I'm way more pro-immigrant than anyone you could find in the, in the Trump administration because I, I kind of want more of every type um, of, of immigrant. So their view is we should cut legal immigration in half. But make it more skill biased and I guess kick everybody out. Yeah. And you're saying, no, we should have a path to citizenship. We should um, maybe shift to more refugees and fewer like siblings and also increase skilled immigrants. But I always think it's interesting where the empirical 
evidence has more of a consensus right. than the politics. Yeah. So the empirical evidence is, is so crystal clear about high-skilled immigrants that I think even the, the Trump administration can find reasons to like them. Although I would point out that they're also discouraging them at the same time because they're they're slowing down the processing of certain types of visas and they're lowering certain types of quotas that would have attracted them. Right. You know, so, so I think we can exaggerate their their professed enthusiasm here, but um, but the empirical consensus is really strong that the high skilled are just a boon. I think the arguments that I'm making for increasing the low skilled ones are, are partly uh, demographic, and that I think it helps to have workers of every type, uh, and it helps to have a less aging population, and, and partly moral. I think. You know, there's a, a reason that many of us learned that poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty right. when we were children. And I, I think setting that aside um, makes us a worse country. Um, so I, I'd rather have us have, a you know, an ethical obligation to the world's poor, which doesn't mean completely open borders, but it means, you know, having an open heart when people nearby <laughs> need a place. Right. And and I yeah. mean, it's worth reiterating that the benefits of immigration to the immigrants are very Enormous. large. It's yes. something like what is it's like a five-fold five-fold increase on average. And and yeah, and and it's a huge efficiency gains from the world perspective. And these people go on to be Americans, right? I mean very patriotic and loyal Americans. You know, I also tell this story about the I don't know if you ever have sriracha sauce on your food. Sure. But the that company was founded by a refugee who came here. Um, we were the only country that would take him at the time. And he named the company after the boat that he came right. on. You know, and, and so whenever you have that sriracha sauce, you should be thinking about good reasons to be kind to refugees because he's kept all that production in the United States in part because uh, he views it as a— as a the patriotic thing to do. Well, this was the trap I was going to spring on you at the end, though. <laughs> so you tell you tell this story, right, of the guy, the, the Hui Fang uh, sriracha yeah, yeah. sauce guy, <laughs> refugee. He loves America. So he yeah. keeps his factory in uh-huh. the United States uh-huh. as a great patriot. Mm-hmm. But then back when we were talking about trade, right? No, so, yeah, I don't think you should have to, by the way. But, no, but, 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 no, but, when, but that... when you tell that story, right? So it's yeah, yeah, it's very yeah. clear what the point of that story yeah, is, yeah. right? That he loves America, right, so right. he keeps his factory here. Yeah, yeah. But doesn't that mean that it would be more, more patriotic for other companies to give us some of that same consideration that well, Vietnamese I've, refugees do? I, I, I think... I, I appreciate the skillfulness with which you made that point. Um, <laughs> and I certainly would be in favor of changing the tax code, for instance, so that we weren't actually encouraging with the, with our tax system companies to offshore, which we do mm-hmm. presently. We're giving companies half the tax rate if they're offshore relative to the United States. So there's all sorts of things we could do to make production in the United States more attractive and to make working uh-huh. in the United States nicer for the workers, too. Um, but I would be, I guess, a little loath to make it. Yeah, all of these decisions moral, even though I like telling that story about the sriracha sauce because I think it's very sweet and it reminds us that, you know, like refugees do become these like very attached Americans, right. which is great. Um, but I don't think every company should have to have every part of their production process in the United States. I mean, I think um, by splitting up these tasks and moving them across borders, we actually make for more efficient processes and, and we make for more interconnected economies. And that's that can be a really nice thing. Like um, one of the big uh, achievements of the European Union was to make Europe so interconnected that things like World War One and World War Two were less attractive to start because you needed each other, right? And I, I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, so I think that's an important part of, of the book, right, is to try to make a case for a worldview, right, and not just a specific 
kind of thing about this tariff or that, right? But the idea that it's better to be more interdependent rather than than Mm -hmm. less. Yes. Yeah. And I I firmly hold that to be true, not just because of the gains from specialization, which are, you know, which are true, because, I mean, you could sort of imagine yourself, for instance, if you tried to do everything yourself, you would... There's not a quicker path to poverty than I can imagine if I, than me trying to make my own food, for instance. Like right. I would end up starving to death. Um, but so I think, you know, there's all sorts of efficiency gains from it. But I also think it's just, you know, the human experiment is a joint one, you know, and I, and I think that um, being dependent on other countries and having interactions with other countries and having uh, global relationships makes it a lot easier when we have problems like climate change or terrorism or global health problems to solve if we've got partners and we've got a shared human experience and we're not all kind of separated into our own little fiefdoms that, that are sort of snarling at each other. Right. So, that, that's yeah. great. I, I'm going to let you go soon, but just close out. Like, is there, what, what, what should I have asked you? What, what did we miss here? Oh, what did we What's miss really here? important? Um, well, I think, I guess, um, the question I would ask sort of is, is what, you know, where we should go from here and what is the the best response to having suffered through the first few years of the Trump administration? Yeah, where do forward? we go from here? How do yeah. we how do we rebuild? Yeah. yeah, and I think that um, what I always would suggest when you've got a problem is to try to take the policies that go most directly to that problem. So mm-hmm. we do have a real problem with middle class um, wage stagnation and income inequality. And we've got just a host of policy tools that I talked about late in the book that are really effective at responding to those. And so whenever we have a problem, be it climate change or, or economic stagnation, I think taking the tools that go directly to the problem instead of blaming a foreigner and hoping that that somehow trickles down to help the problem, I think I think that's what I would really encourage people to do is to sort of think, is this the most direct tool to that that problem? Right. Yeah. So if you, if yeah. you want higher wages, more yeah, yeah. like. Yeah. Do, do the programs that do that. Yeah. Earned income tax credit expansion is a really effective way to move money um, to to workers who aren't making enough. You know, it's and it's proven. We've got it already. We can make it more generous. Um, and, and that would be really helpful. Uh, whereas these corporate tax cuts uh, <laughs> to shareholders is a very indirect mechanism of right. helping workers. And, and so is a tariff, right? I mean, um, we're counting on, you know, uh, a handful of steel workers to raise the middle class. And that's, you know, while we're simultaneously hurting auto workers and soybean farmers, you know, that is not an effective, straightforward way to help workers. Okay, fantastic. Um, thank you so much, uh, Professor Kimberly Clausing from, from Reed College. Thank you to Jeff Guild, our producer, and of course, to Bird Pinkerton. And the Weeds uh, will be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.